as Pastor Leo said, it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning and to worship him together. I know I always enjoy our times together when we sing and when we pray and when we read his word. Well, today um, I want to talk about a, something that I know that I hardly ever think about in relationship my, with myself, and that is the word perfect. Because um, perfect is used in so many different ways these days. It is often applied to um, a lot of things. A team has a perfect, uh-oh, did I, I did, sorry. A team has a perfect winning record. A day at the beach or the lake was a perfect day. A photographer captured the winning touchdown perfectly. The perfect outfit was found to go to a party. A graduate found the perfect job. A family is searching for the perfect sofa. Um, Perfect has even been applied to people. You are the perfect person to give the news of the layoff to the team. A man or a woman looks for the perfect spouse. Um, We all know that none of these things are really perfect. The way the world is, we look around us and we see everything is far from perfect. However, I think we would probably all agree that God is perfect. He's probably the only thing that we can think of that is perfect. But... When I think about the way that things were when God first created the world, everything was truly perfect. It's hard to imagine our world as perfect, but it was perfect then. And so uh, Adam and Eve were even made perfect before they decided to do things their way instead of God's way. So let's look at for a minute at how God made the human race and what he made us to be. So you all know that in Genesis 1 is where he talks about creation. Genesis 1.26 and 2.7 is when he talks about the, uh, how he formed human beings. So in verse 26 of chapter 1 he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so, then he says in verse seven of chapter two, he gets more specific about he formed man. He said he formed man from the dust to the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So we are created in the image of God. Not created out of, out of nothing. As, because as you know, for the rest of creation, he just spoke, let there be light and there was, just like that. But when he formed man, He'd already created the earth. So he took dust out of the ground and he formed man and then blew into his nostrils. Now that term, the Hebrew term there, when it says that the breath of life was what he breathed into man. 
And that word means spirit, breath, wind. And only we have spirits. When he breathed into us, it, he breathed some of his spirit into us. And so, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I know I've certainly thought about that a lot over the years. And God's a spirit, so it certainly can't mean anything physical. He doesn't have characteristics of a physical being. So we have to resemble him in what other ways? And so I've kind of picked out three things that I felt were, um, were pretty critical things that God has given us. We have moral responsibility. We know the difference between right and wrong. And we have the ability to choose what we're going to do. We are accountable for our actions. And we are to obey the commands of God. And in the second thing, we have the capacity to have a relationship with him. Now that's just absolutely incredible to me. We can know him and have fellowship and communion with him. And every day I know when I get up in the morning and start my morning prayers, I just thank God for that ability to have a fellowship with him, a relationship with him. And then he gave us, as you saw in verse 26 of chapter 1, we have the capacity to act as representatives on earth. We have his stewardship of the world. And that means taking care and nurturing the world. Now, a lot of what we see going on around us is not taking care of and nurturing the world. We'll just admit that right offhand. So Adam and Eve, when they were formed, created, they possessed a moral, relational, and representative capacity. They also were filled with God's holiness and righteousness. They were perfect. They were created perfectly. And they were that way until they decided that they wanted to be otherwise. So, what did God do with those humans that he created and filled with life? And we know this. This is in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Now, I don't know about you, but some, as I was growing up, many people told me, well, when you get to heaven, you're not going to have chores. You're not going to have any work to do. Well, I don't believe that. I think that God is going to give us meaningful work to do in heaven because, because work that is without sin can be tremendously fulfilling and deeply satisfying. Maybe some of you have experienced that in work that you've done. I know I have. I just really felt very fulfilled and very satisfied. And um, so, at any rate, I think we will have meaningful work in heaven, just as an aside. So, in the garden, we look and we see in verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And so all food that was necessary for sustenance 
and anything that would make them, give them a peaceful, happy, fulfilled living was there in the garden. But then we see in verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So that tree was there. Why do you think you put, God put that tree in the garden? I'll tell you, that's something that's bothered me over the years too. And I wondered, because if God had never put that tree there, then we would never have had a chance to sin. Now, I'm sure that we would have in some other way, but at any rate. Um, these are some thoughts about why it could have possibly been put in the, in the garden. As you, as many of you know, God had created an earlier order of angels. Some of those angels had rebelled and fallen and become agents of evil. Those angels had access to the earth. And so when God created the earth, God could have acknowledged with that tree that there are agents of evil in the world. It could have been a warning that Satan will try to tempt them. It could have been a warning not to go there and join him in rebellion. But it could have been an opportunity to confirm their obedience to God and consequently their holiness. Okay. I know in my life anyway, sometimes God will warn me about something um, that is in my life that could be a problem. Well, whatever it is doesn't look harmful to me, so I tell God, okay, thanks for the warning. But I don't really take it seriously, and gradually what God warned me about becomes more and more appealing to me through exposure, etc. And very soon, I'm actually thinking about doing, saying, experiencing the very thing that God told me was going to be a problem. So the next step, of course, is doing what God warned me about, and I've sinned. So I know that it's a possibility, and so I, I guard against that. But let's take a look at how it happened to Eve. Now, we all know this story pretty well. So let's look in Genesis 3.1. And it talks about Satan, how he is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He raised questions about God's word. Did God really say? He misquoted what God said back in uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that they could eat from any tree except one. Satan does that today, too. You've probably experienced that. Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? How is that going to harm you? And then let's look at how Eve responded in verses 2 and 3. She, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she told Satan what God had said, but she added a restriction that God had not said. It's never a good idea to do that. I mean, and we have done that many times ourselves. 
things that God has said in the Bible, we will add plenty of restrictions around it. And God didn't say those things. He said what he said. So, what Satan said back in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan contradicted what God said, but and told them what would be an advantage to them, that God would, they would be like God and their knowledge would be greater. They would know the difference between good and evil. Choice is an important thing, and Adam and Eve had a choice. I wonder why he did that. But choice is important if we're going to be holy. Just for an example, um, machines work for us, and I often think about my cell phone, that it can work without error, but it cannot be holy. It doesn't have that capacity. You can't have a relationship with a cell phone because the machine doesn't have a choice in that relationship. Although I know some people who have a better relationship with their cell phone than they do with their spouse. Nevertheless, it can't have a relationship with you. You can force a cell phone to serve you, but they have no capacity to choose you or to choose to love you. So without choice, there's no love, there's no real relationship. There's no genuine holiness. Adam and Eve did have a choice. And um, in Genesis 3, 6, we see what she did. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Eve did not make an emotional choice here. She thought it through. You can tell by what the scripture says. She saw three things, then, about the fruit on the tree that was good. She saw it was good for food. She saw it was pleasing to the eye. And she saw it was desirable for wisdom. The scripture does not record that she ever thought of the alternate, anything negative, about the action of eating the fruit. Perhaps she did, and it was just never recorded. But what was negative about eating that fruit? It was against God's specific command. Do not eat the tree of that food. And we know that disobeying God is never a good idea. So she took some and ate it and also gave it to her husband who was with her. Now the results of what happened was that they lost a great deal. Instead of taking the opportunity of choosing to obey God, relying on the fact that he would never give them anything to do that would harm them, they chose to follow their own evaluation of what would be good for them. Don't we do that frequently? They knew what was the right thing to do, but they chose to do the wrong thing. We even do that sometimes. They went purposely against their God-given moral responsibility. 
Then they also broke, that, broke the love relationship that they had with God through a willing act of disobedience. They stated very clearly the motto of the human race now, not your will, God, but mine be done. Then in Genesis 3-7, probably this, one of the saddest statements in the whole scriptures, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they were. Before they had seen things from God's perspective, now they saw things through their own perspective. And unfortunately, this problem did not end with Adam and Eve. It's not just their problem. As the first humans, they were representatives of all of us. In essence, we were all there with Adam and Eve when they ate that fruit. Consequently, we were all brought into the rebellion against God. We are all now born with sinful natures and a tendency towards sin and a physical and spiritual drive that is heading us towards death. Every day, we not only were born with this, every day we confirm our choice that this is truly our natural state by sinning. And what's even worse, we can't fix it. There's nothing we can do. It's like a car trying to fix its, its own flat tire, or a computer virus, or even a cell phone that can't fix itself. If, we, if our cell phone goes bad, we buy a new one. We can't do that with our lives. So we have fallen from holiness, and there is nothing we can do ourselves to put this right. But God had a plan, and he had that from the very beginning. But in order to be ready for that good news of the plan, we have to look at our sin as seriously as God does. There's a huge gulf between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Do we take sin seriously? And I'll tell you, even as Christians, we need to. His plan is to provide a way not only to get us back together with him, but to make us his sons and daughters as though we were born from him. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, sorry, 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So let's look at what the challenge God had in finding someone to to fix this problem. I mean, you and I both know that he had this whole thing laid out in his mind. He knew we were going to sin from the very beginning. He had his plan set to rescue us from the very beginning too. But let's just see what it had to be in order to solve this problem that we'd created for ourselves. Because we were all born in sin, with a sin nature, we cannot solve this problem. Because the person who solves this problem has to be able not to sin. We cannot. We are human. And so every day, we choose our, our will over God's will and thereby choose to sin. As Augustine said, we are all sinners by birth and by nature. 
So how can we get out of this if everyone who is human is born to sin? It would have to be somebody who had a real choice, was not born with a sin nature, and this time would not give in to temptation like Adam and Eve did. Not sin. Couldn't be born with a sin nature. Has to have a real choice. We can't fulfill that. But they have to be human because it was a human being who committed this sin in the first place. So, as we know, God's intervention was Jesus, the perfect person, because he was, he was both holy God and holy man. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been able to fully understand that. I don't think I ever will. I'm not sure I will even when I get to heaven. But, and, most of you know I work as um, the pastor of NCLC, and sometimes the kids ask me that question, some very precocious five-year-olds. But nevertheless, it's just a hard question to answer. I don't know how that can possibly be, but I do know that it was, that God made it happen. And so... Um, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and this is not on a slide. I'm sorry, I did not get this in there, so I'll read this to you. Um, Since the children, humans, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that his, by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's Hebrews again, 2, 14 through 15. Yes, he took on flesh and blood, and he became a man because he needed to in order to break that. But once he became a human being, that wasn't all he had to do. He had to live without sin. And as um, as a human being and being tempted the way that he was, He was the only one who was perfect and can do that. He was the second human, the way for the human race to break the mold and break the hold of sin and death. Even when he was in Jerusalem as a child, he said to his parents when they found him, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He was always doing the father's will, even as a child. Satan tempted him in every possible way. Unlike Adam, Jesus refused to yield. He obeyed God. He did not join the rebellion. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus said. He chose to live without sin. He could have chosen to disobey God, but he did not. Jesus said when Satan was tempting him in the desert, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's what he did all of his life. Now, we all know the hardest test was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, Jesus poured out his heart to his father, asking for the coming ordeal to be taken from him. He was going to bear the sin of the whole world, and he was going to be separated from his father as he'd never been before in order to bear the sin of the world. The fate of every person who had ever lived or would ever lived on the earth hung in the balance. In that moment, Jesus reverses the mantra of humanity, which is, not your will, but mine be done. 
And he said, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, we see his suffering, the suffering of an innocent. And we cry out, not fair. It's not fair that he suffers when he did nothing wrong. And we would be right. It isn't fair. It's love. But because God loves us, he made the greatest sacrifice. He died for us. So Jesus is the perfect person who could live a perfect life of obedience and take on the sin of the whole world. He is the only one who could. He's the only one who was fully human and fully God and also did not sin. So Hebrews 5, 8 through 9 says it really well, I think. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So perfect in this sentence does not always bring me without fault. Now in this case, it was true that he was both without fault, but in this sense, it means that he completed his assigned task, exactly what he was supposed to do. He completed it without fault. And so there was nothing more to, done, to do. It is done, it is finished, he said. And it truly was. So because of Jesus' death on the cross, we see these results. We see the rebellion being erased by Jesus' obedience. Not that we still don't see rebellion around us, but we don't have to join it now. We have a choice. We have an alternative to love God and accept his love for us. Then the hopelessness of sin and rebellion is replaced by grace. Through Adam's and Eve eating of the fruit, we were condemned. Through Christ's life and death, we are saved. Praise God. So Jesus has made it possible for everyone to be able to be restored with those neat, unique gifts that God gave us in the beginning to clearly know what is right and wrong. And through God, we can do this. We can take sin seriously, as seriously as God does. We can confess it, and he cleans our hearts. He's promised to do that. Then we have a renewed relationship with God. We ask God to be a permanent resident in our hearts, keeping it clean and full of himself. And he will do that too. He gave us to be stewards of the earth, and as, as we know him, we can be true stewards of the earth and seeing the earth as he does and treating it as he does, loving people as he loves them. So, now, we all know that God knew this whole scenario before the beginning of the earth. And he knew exactly what choices that we would make. So we know that he had all of this planned out, a solution for this. And so, because God knew all of this, and yet still gave us, made us the way we are, put us in the situation that he does, and did, even knowing the choice that we would make. 
knowing what he would have to sacrifice in order to save us. So why did he give, it that, give us that choice? I think it's because he loves us, but we, he wanted us to have a free choice to love him. And so we do have a free choice to love him. It's not something that he forces us into at all. It's something that we get to choose. And so I know that many of us in here have already made that choice. But there is still a choice. Every day we decide who's going to be our leader. Is it going to be God throughout the day, everything that we do? Or is it going to be ourselves, which is really Satan goading us not to be following after God. So I pray that all of us choose God every day to be our leader. Okay, let's just take a minute to pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you. For you are truly God. You are truly the one who loves us. You were truly the one who not only gave us free choice, set us up so that we would have it, but also, Lord, you give us free choice every day of our lives. And Lord, we get the opportunity to recommit ourselves to you every day and to obey you every day in everything that we do. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we thank you. In thy name, amen.